0: Hey all, it's Mark Lentenmeyer. I wanted to talk to you about this thing we've been doing throughout 2015, which is holding aftershows for the Partially Examined Life. To use an analogy, if the episode is the lecture portion, then the aftershow is the discussion portion. And we've been very lucky for the last bunch of these to have comedian Danny Lobel of the Modern Day Philosophers podcast hosting for us, and one of us PEL guys shows up, in this case, me. So we're very excited about how these have been going, and I think they're about ready for prime time. Now, we don't really want to post the full audio on the podcast feed here. Not because we want to keep it just secret for citizens only, but just because the way we record these things with Google Hangout, compared to our regular episodes, the audio quality is not that awesome. But these discussions have become really a lot of fun. And I want to encourage all of you to go check out our YouTube channel, which is newly linked with the little YouTube icon in the upper right corner of partiallyexaminedlife.com. So that channel has a playlist on it that will allow you to watch all, All of the after shows so far recorded, and you'll also see a playlist on there with a link to our live episode 100, a couple of recent not-school discussions, and our friend Daniel Horn over the years has put together short audio excerpts of many of our episodes that are of ideal size for you to share with your friends and introduce them to the partially examined life. Now, the most immediate thing you should do on that channel is to show up there this Sunday, July 26th, at 3 p.m. Eastern or noon Pacific, or really any time after that, where you'll be able to watch the after show for episode 119 on Nietzsche. So one change in our approach here. Yes, we want to involve listeners, but we're looking at, in addition to having Danny and the PEL person, some kind of guest expert and academic of some sort. So we're going to try that out on the Nietzsche one with Dr. Gregory B. Sadler, who I name-checked a couple times for his four-part YouTube series on The Birth of Tragedy. So we're very excited to include him in the chorus of voices that will show up on that after show. Now, the segment that you're about to hear is a group of musicians, many of whom I personally courted to get them to show up. The chief guest among these is a third member of Camper Van Beethoven, that is, founding guitarist-slash-songwriter Chris Mala, another semi-celebrity that showed up to the discussion, but which actually you're not going to hear on this short excerpt, is Warren Fisher of the great techno-experimental band Fisher Spooner. Folks you are going to hear on here are Max Bartko, Chase Fiorenza, Mike Wilson, and the discussion also included Adrian Cho. All right, thanks for listening. Hope you enjoy this small chunk of the episode 118 after show on songwriting, which kicks off with my elaborating some of my comments from the end of the, our discussion on authenticity. If you listen to the full discussion, you'll hear a lot of Fetching about the state of the music business, originality, humor in music, many other topics.
1: At least my conclusion at the end of it was this whole authenticity thing. I compared it to being fashionable, and I did not mean that it's just like, oh, you shouldn't worry about that. Don't worry about being fashionable. That's stupid. Don't worry about being authentic. That's stupid. I was concerned about it, that it's a spectator-related thing rather than a creator-related thing. I think it's legitimate as, mm. as a person listening to something Interesting. to say, is mm-hmm. this coming from a person? Is this coming from a corporation that put this together to make something right. to my tastes? Imitating right. people who actually had something to say. As a listener, that's important. But as a creator, you already know whether you're a person or a corporation or something. <laughs> like, it's not even an issue. So mm. I just, it was kind of weird yeah. that, that Victor himself That had to do with his own progression as somebody who was trying to delve deep into the blues and these other traditional forms, which is kind of a strange, foreign thing to me. It's not something that resonates with me that much. I would rather use traditional forms to make something new and crazy, not try to get back to the authentic 1940s stuff. So I was interested to hear about his struggles with that. And I guess there's a question right there that he was taking as his paradigm of authenticity, getting in and playing really old blues numbers. Yeah, so you're playing something somebody else wrote. You're playing something maybe the the words have been going around the culture for a long time, yet you could still think that's authentic. There are different pictures of authenticity working.
2: In the case of folk music, and folk music is, by definition, something that belongs to everyone and no one. Every performance, every version, is an authentic version of this thing that we all recognize and pass around and carry with us. It's, it's something to share. And I think that's the expression. Generally, you listen to somebody, you pick up something, you, know, you incorporate it into what you do, whether it's literally lifting a sample or learning a lick or inflecting your voice a certain way. That's just part of the process of music as a human activity. It's something to share.
1: Before we go on, I wanted to acknowledge that we had a late arrival, Max Barco, who is the guy, along with uh, Michael, that I worked on our Eagle 12 Days of Christmas thing this last <laughs> holiday season, which is how I hooked up with Jonathan Stegel in the first place, and why we ended up having this episode.
3: I'm an electronic musician. I've been a rapper for a long time, but the contributions that I've been putting here are mostly electronic. I think what really permeated my experience with music and was really at work when I was listening to the episode is I also grew up with a kind of indie rock kind of sense of authenticity and looking for the authenticity. And eventually I was very scarred to realize that all of my tastes were constructed by a corporate machine, that my desires, that what I believed was real was... Or at least you know, mediated through it, yeah. Yeah, there's a bizarre kind of authenticity in embracing how constructed you are, which was a part of the like industrial movement of the 1980s, and I'm still a little bit lost here. I don't know what to do with that, especially if you look at art history. There was this idea before the more Enlightenment humanist art values where authenticity was something about the self and bringing you to a universal experience, there was this idea of authenticity actually continuing a tradition and putting as little of yourself in the work as possible. That's, That's certainly true, not true with a lot of strains of computer music. I, don't know
1: why. I have a question for Max, though. Sure. You mentioned that it bothered you that to learn that your music was arriving via some corporate distribution was packed. Mm-hmm. So why
3: did it bother you? thing as as a listener really well. But I don't think that this ends up going away as when you're a performer it gets more insidious. The idea that, is this coming from me or is this coming from a machine? And it seems pretty straightforward where well, you have Iggy Pop. He's this junkie He couldn't get a corporation together if he tried. He's just out there sweating and doing his thing. And then you have a team of suits behind him that are altering the sound and marketing. There seems to be this dialectic of authenticity and corporate values there whereas now those suits and the performer are like the same person. Instead of there being this clear opposition between people who are in it for the music and expressing the human experience and people that are trying to make a buck, those things have collapsed. The thing that is an expression of the human experience is trying to make a buck. Trying to make a buck ends up becoming like a valid expression of the human experience because it's so central to our lives. This challenged my own conception not only as a listener but as a performer. All the music I grew up with, you know my Pink Floyd was like a holy relic to me. I only really listened to Pink Floyd because my dad showed me Pink Floyd and my dad heard it on the radio. And my dad didn't understand that Young Lust was a satiric tune making fun of cock rock and just kind of listened to it on face value. But he really enjoyed it and he passed it on to me. And there was a total authentic experience I was having within this extremely mediated realm. The feelings I was getting was this what Schopenhauer is talking about the sense that art brings you to the universal of humanity, whereas I'm really dealing with this particular set of trends that was in the mid-70s.
1: Actually, just because you brought up Pink Floyd, I watched a couple <laughs> of documentaries recently, and the fact that Roger Waters describes it as their shared goal as a band was to become millionaires. millionaire. And this is <laughs> one of the most sort of creative, yes. artistic bands from the time. And that's sort of why it fell apart, because they became millionaires. And then like,
2: eh,
1: I don't think I need to write songs anymore. Okay, so, they- care of that. So, that's,
3: so that disturbed me as a listener, especially when I started making music and trying to go for the authentic, because I think this is what makes indie rock people abandon indie rock and look for previous traditions like the blues. Or for me, I went even further into mediated land and I went to hip hop, which, you know, is literally composed of cut-up disco bricks at its inception. People do make the authenticity argument with hip-hop, but it's even harder to is sustain. It, is it
1: the lyrical perspective, whether it's I'm from the streets or whatever, you happen to be communicating the rap? What about even just surely the instrumentals? Is that even a concern yeah. of authenticity, or is it that am I sampling too much?
3: Both. Well, there's the question of hip-hop's
1: cultural particularity, because if you've noticed,
3: most of the music we're talking about comes from American black traditions and eventually subsumed, taken away, away from those traditions and kind of not really associated with them anymore. The blues, I think, uh, you know, old white dudes, jazz, old white dudes, rock and roll, middle-aged white dudes, you know what I mean? But hip-hop has kind of evaded that kind of institutionalization because it's, it's supposedly associated still with the black experience in America, even though if I go to, uh, the hip-hop shows in San Francisco, it's a bunch of crunchy granola hippie MCs. So there's that. And then there's a whole debate, especially in the 80s and 90s and into the 2000s, where there's an idea of how to sample authentically. If you sample something that other people had already sampled, is that authentic? Are you copying their sampling? Like if I sample the same records that Dr. Dre sampled, that's not an original sample. Or um, I've heard rappers articulate that if you can only play instruments, if you only you know fuck with keyboards, if you can only play instruments and you don't know how to use samples, that you're inauthentic. Like, I've heard it from every angle. It's crazy. It's like combing through a metaphysics textbook and being left with the aporia at the end of, like, I don't know what's authentic. Well,
2: authentic sample just sounds like an oxymoron which doesn't right. mean it's not, it's not fine to do, but I trouble your skin. You know, When I think about when like, I use samples, and I usually yeah. use samples work yeah. of, of you know, notes of the soonest. Uh, yeah, playing, going up and down, and putting the instrument into the spaces, and taking very careful samples, so that you can have a bassoon in your computer and make use of it. I mean, it's, it's yeah, kind of go away at that point. It's, yes, there's always,
1: there's right long as you successfully put the bassoonist out of business.
2: Well, <laughs> see, that's the thing. like well, well, see, here's and here's the thing. If I could afford to hire a bassoonist, I would choose to do that first, because I would rather mm. work with a musician. Mm-hmm. But I can't afford. to... And where I live, I don't know where I live. actually I'd probably go. I'm in Santa Fe, but or Albuquerque, but they miles away, and you know, I couldn't afford to do that. Or I live. That's me, that's my preference. Mm-hmm. I, for instance, have hesitations about when I'm working on percussion tracks. Mm-hmm. If I got a song, I think twice or I hesitate, and I do it anyway, but I, I try to, mm-hmm. I end up using something that sounds like a drum kit. But I thought, I don't really have a drummer. I should mm-hmm. use sounds that aren't quite that aren't real drum samples. I should make it sound a little electronic. So you know, yeah. I, I have a I have a moral or an ethical. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I that for me there. A lot of times I end up I've had I use it anyway because the electronic stuff is just not right for what I'm trying to do. But mm-hmm. if I had a studio and I could afford a drummer, I would bring a drummer in. And so that's how I think about it. Mm-hmm. But if I'm doing something purely electronic, then or consciously sampled, I mean, those emotions.
4: Yeah, I think in terms of authenticity, I think it kind of might have a two-pronged approach. You would have the authenticity if you're just sitting down with an instrument and creating something from your own mind, your own will or whatnot. But I think it also applies to giving your own interpretation of something that could already exist. I know, for example, a few years ago I was really into finding Track stems. Mm. Trent Reznor, at one point, released like a bunch of Nine Inch Nails, individual tracks, and he just encouraged people to mix. He would give it to you in the different formats that people might need. But even putting your own touch on something that's been pre-recorded already, I would definitely consider that to be... Authentic, it's just in a different vein with a different technology. I know for the most recent record I made, there was a lot of synthetics involved where we were having to program synths or drums because we were just recording in a bedroom. So we couldn't really get a drummer in there with a, enough mics and didn't really know what we were doing enough to record it the way it should sound. But I think a lot of it would just depend on your approach. If you're authentically trying to create something and be innovative, I think a lot of it has to do with your intentions and the approach you take in the process. Is it
1: possible yeah. to be accidentally inauthentic?
4: Oh, yeah. I would think so, yeah. I know a lot of my best ideas have come after I've recorded something and I'm playing around in post-production and, and then you take something that was a mistake or uh, not what you intended and it ends up being your favorite part of, of the production. So,
2: Or you go through the whole trouble of writing and recording and you know, chilling and and then you stop and think, wait a minute, I should check around and make sure that I'm actually not actually just reproducing something that I heard you know, never, never, like five years ago. Yeah, that's the worst um, is when you
4: realize you completely ripped someone off and <laughs> you didn't even realize it. It's just parallel
5: um, thinking, right? There's just so much stuff that, out yeah, there Yeah, a it. point.
2: Right, that said, I mean, who, how many times have you heard something or the tune go in these two bars? I was like, oh, that's also this. Yeah. Twinkle Twinkle and Little Star and ABC
1: are the same song. So that's fine. <laughs> as long as it's you slobbering the words over it, then you can say it's <laughs> authentically you. you know, it's exactly. what rock and roll is. It's the same freaking three chords or whatever. Exactly. Because it's you and not somebody else that's slobbering over it, then it's
5: authentic. Sure. You, you were saying uh, something, Danny? Yeah, no, I was just saying that at a certain point, it's impossible to be completely original or, or authentic. It's all been regurgitated before, and pretty much what you said. As long as it's coming from your point of view, and you're not blatantly trying to rip somebody off, you're trying to express yourself, you may find that your expression is similar to somebody else's, as long as you're not stealing from somebody. I guarantee you anything you've ever written, if you did some kind of search, some computer algorithm, and and looked for the keys, or the bars, or the notes that you wrote, you'll probably find 10,000 bands that wrote a similar song. At a certain point, you just have to be honest and come from your point of view and put out a little piece of your soul and and know that that's also been shaped by everybody else's souls around you. It's all been absorbed into the big uh, universal sponge.
0: Again, if you are a partially examined life citizen, you can go right now to our site, log in, and hear the full one-hour, 45-minute discussion and I want to remind you, you don't actually have to listen to it on our website or download it from our website. All of our citizen content, including ad-free current episodes, after shows, not school audio, those vintage episodes no longer on our public feed, all those things are available on our private feed. So they can be beamed straight to your mobile device using any application that accepts password-protected feeds. Applications like that that we've checked out are Downcast for Apple or Podcast Republic for Android devices. Share the YouTube link. Share the link to this preview with folks. Or if you've been putting off getting involved yourself, don't put it off anymore. So August is almost upon us. If there's something that you want to talk about with other listeners, it's just $5 a month to become a partially examined life citizen to support us. And this would be exactly the time to go propose a not-school group. We can walk you through the process of running one. It's really very simple. And it doesn't have to be on a book that you've read. It could just be on some past Partially Examined Life episodes. You, say, want to talk about ethics with people, or about hermeneutics, or about existentialism, or about any of the themes we've covered. Or maybe you want to get people to watch some online lectures with you, watch some of the philosophy movies on Netflix. There are many, many options for not-school groups. The After shows is just being the most visible one. I'm also actually running a group right now on Aeschylus' Oresteia. So this is the era of tragedy even before Sophocles that Nietzsche was really excited about. We're going to have our discussion of that on August 9th, if you want to pick up a version of that, or just go listen to the LibriVox online version of those plays, I'd love to have you join us. And if you look back in our list of episodes here, you'll see there are a couple of Not School Highlights episodes, so you can hear chunks of those discussions and hear what it's all about. I wanted to mention that just today, I posted another Not School discussion on Charles Sanders Purse's The Fixation of Belief, that is for an ongoing group that you can get involved with. We've got our ongoing fiction group, posted a discussion recently on Kafka, his story of the penal colony, and there are many other proposals on the table that what we really need is more of you to step up and become group leaders yourself and pursue things that you want to talk about, you want to study. Oh, and the closing music you're about to hear is a song just called R.G. by Mike Wilson that you just heard speak. Thanks.